Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Voices from 2020, an audio program powered by Stranova, exploring strategic reflections on our business present from the perspective of the future, and featuring your hosts, Bill Veltrup and Firehawk. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Voices from 2020. Welcome to the fifth podcast in the Voices from 2020 series. I'm Firehawk, and I'd like to help you get ready to travel to the year 2020. As many of you might suspect, there are an infinite number of possible futures. Whether our collective future is wondrous or disastrous will be importantly influenced by the choices we make as human beings. Bill Veltrup and I are convinced that we, as a species, have been grossly underestimating our capacity to choose a future that works for all. We have decided to pursue a path forward that helps us collectively envision and move towards an ideal future. To move towards wholeness, in other words. So here's what we've done so far. Our first stop was to petition the Guild of Evolutionary Time Travelers, GET, to become licensed to travel to an ideal year 2020. We had to go through a rather extensive and intensive process before we received our provisional license, but we got it. Brad Redderson learned about our achievement and in a typical burst of genius and generosity offered to have his Stranova site host a year-long series of monthly podcasts with Bill and I interviewing people with vision from an ideal year 2020. In the first Voices from 2020 podcast, Brad interviewed Bill and I. The big news from that first podcast was that the greater San Francisco Bay Area will be hosting the 2020 Infinite Games. Stay tuned to this series and to our website, VoicesFrom2020.com, to learn more about it. In the second podcast, we interviewed Gil Friend and Jeff Saperstein and saw how their deep commitment to creating regional dashboards made a difference in an ideal 2020 future. In the third podcast, we interviewed Tom Attlee, who spoke of the power of becoming conscious of our own evolution and how that can serve the whole of life. Last month, in our fourth podcast, we interviewed Dwayne Elgin, an internationally recognized author and speaker who looks beneath the surface turbulence of our times to explore the deeper trends that are transforming our world. The interview with Duane went so well, we ended up making last month's podcast part one of a two-part series. And so this month, we bring you part two of Duane Elgin. As a respected visionary, Duane has been in the forefront of exploring humanity's evolutionary journey, sustainable ways of living, media accountability, citizen empowerment, and the convergence of the new science with the world's wisdom traditions. And so now, we take you 
to the year 2020 in part two of the interview with Dwayne Elgin. What we're talking about with the media now are is computer systems that have an intelligence that is comparable to human intelligence. And so uh, not only do we have social networking, we have intelligent social networking mm. for high purposes and high needs in the face of a world systems crisis. With these gatherings of players being very important to provide the value aspect to this intelligence. I remember um, when I first met uh, Bill here uh, back in 1990, um, he was gathering all these people together in the organizational world that had technologies of transformation. You know, they were very broad groups of people, about 70 people, but one of the ones that, um, that attracted me, because uh, this was all new to me at that time, but one of the ones that was really attracted to me was a thing that they called appreciative inquiry. You know, it was really uh, seeking out the miracle rather than just focusing the energy on the problem. Yeah. And one of the phrases that you reminded me of as I was listening to you talk uh, that my friend Tom Pittman used to describe appreciative inquiry. He called it organizations in full voice. Hmm. And, and, I, and I was thinking about hmm. um, connecting this in with our quest here and the voices from 2020 because uh, what emerged for us back in 2006 is that there would be in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, there would be in 2020 uh, the Infinite Games, the 2020 Infinite Games, and they would be hosted by the Bay Area, but it would be a regional focus, a regional way of bringing together the very best of. And, and what you've added to that for me, Dwayne, is this notion of, of regions in full voice. Mm -hmm. which I think is a, a wonderful way to describe what I like that. I've heard you speak about. I like that. The uh, Infinite Games is a, a bit like the Olympic Games in terms of attracting people from all over the planet. But it's not in competition and it's not nation states. It's, it's regions. And what you're describing here is the a phenomena that's been growing over the past yeah. 14 <clears throat> years, really. That, that supports the Infinite Games. It was in one of our early podcasts that we, we learned about the Infinite Games as something that the Bay Area posted. And you provided another, another missing piece in terms of picturing that. So let's go back to this, uh, something you mentioned way back when we started, and that had to do with the skills that we uh, that we focused on uh, societally over the past 14 years. So, can you go back and to that and amplify on that for us? Well, there are no, three, three. There are three major areas, um, and I think about it. It's easy for me to remember if I think about it in the following way: uh, my feet are on the ground. Okay, I need a new relationship with the earth because we're over consuming the earth. Uh, we're consuming roughly 1.2 Earths uh, a year right now. In other words, the earth can replenish itself every year. It can replenish the uh, the water in the aquifers. It can replenish the fish in the ocean. It can replenish the uh, the soil and its integrity. But if we if we overstress the oceans and the and the air and the earth and so on, we're we're overstressing this biosystem and its ability to regenerate itself. Oh, I see. Okay, so in other words, we're 
we're, we're consuming 20% more than can be naturally replenished. Well said. Okay. Yes, we're Thank consuming 20% more than can be naturally okay. replenished. Well, back, yes. back to your feet. So, <laughs> feet on the ground, new relationship with the earth, one that is actually uh, sustainable, and that's no small feat. Okay. Oh, that's bad. That's really bad. Right. Come on. Ooh, I love that's, it. I love oh. it. Too. Only because you're so ancient. We'll, we'll that. All right. So then, uh, secondly, uh, a new relationship with one another. And that's my hands. Uh, how I extend my hands out. Um, we are uh, in need of healing uh, our relationships with one another, uh, and just look at the. Uh, uh, over the years of how we've healed uh, religious uh, warfare that was for a while telling, uh, tearing apart uh, the Middle East and other parts of the world. Uh, we've begun to heal uh, the violence uh, between men and women. And we have a much more uh, uh, welcoming society of the feminine that we, than uh, we used to. Uh, we're healing uh, racial and ethnic divisions. We're beginning to heal some of the extraordinary divisions of um, uh, impoverishment that, are, uh, that had been around the world, at least with the promise that people are going to have a more sustainable uh, way of living. And we're shifting our military expenditures and into uh, these uh, sustainability expenditures, recognizing that in some ways, sustainability is more critical issue than terrorism is because sustainability and the lack thereof is the uh, breeding ground for terrorism and so on. The third area is then my head and the head is pointing towards the uh, universe. And uh, so the third thing we need is a new relationship with the universe. We're not even thinking about our relationship with the universe. We're completely consumed uh, with our uh, lives as socially constructed beings and here we are though uh, forgetting the place it's our original home. We're living in a living universe. And so what's happened over, over the last uh, 14 years is uh, we begin uh, be, begin to see um, that the world's wisdom traditions, our spiritual traditions, all have this regard for the universe as a living system. And that is one place that we can all take a stand in and recognize that this is our deeper uh, home, living in this living sacred universe. So those are the three things, a new relationship with the earth, a new relationship with one another, and a new relationship with the universe. And with that, we have um, three foundations for a balanced uh, journey home. If we just work on any one of those three, uh, it won't be sufficient. We need to work on all three. I can understand your articulateness here because I believe back when, back in 2006, weren't you writing a book that that uh, kind of lays out what you just described? <laughs> Yes. Uh, so tell, tell, tell me, did you ever finish the book? Yeah. And, 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 and what, happened, what happened with that book? Kelly, I thought you heard that I, I not only finished that, that in turn became my best-selling book. It was titled The First Miracle, mm. subtitled Living in a Living Universe. So that really sparked a whole uh, area of inquiry and interest about uh, the universe as a living system and how we relate to that and then what meaning does that have for our lives and let me give an example in in a people said well look in the past uh they said well it's a dead universe and in a dead universe consumerism makes sense materialism mm -hmm. makes sense in a dead universe mm -hmm. um and so when people started getting the idea from science and the wisdom traditions that the whole thing's alive and we're a part of that aliveness uh, 
Well, then materialism kind of took a back seat to the juice and the engagement in that aliveness, the energy of that, exploring that. And even though it's kind of transparent and invisible and subtle, it's still engaging. And you can see that aliveness in other people and in the world around us and so on. And it just began to shift how people regarded themselves, their sense of identity. I was no longer this small being as a part of the uh, living universe. And uh, my sense of identity shifted. My sense of life purpose began to expand and grow and so on. So uh, even though it was subtle, it turned out to be a, a profound dimension of the paradigm shift, the perceptual paradigm that would support the human family coming together around a uh, promising future. Mm. When you were taught going from the feet to the hands, yeah. head, <clears throat> touching looking at our relationship with the earth, our relationship with each other, and then our relationship with the universe. Uh, I was thinking that the relationship with the universe was the one that would be hardest for a lot of people in 2006 to, to recognize or to see as being an important catalyst, if you will. But as I listened to you describe it, it was an important catalyst. And it draws, you say it's drawing from a lot of the, the uh, deep spiritual traditions. Can you describe, or would you help describe, uh, kind of how that, that feeling, that sense of belonging to a friendly universe, how that uh, got traction, and how long did that take, because it I know there are a lot of people who thought that way back in 2006, but it clearly was not mainstream. It clearly didn't exist in the institutions. Right. There were some just stunning insights in science that emerged right around that time, actually, and before. And, for example, uh, one insight was that uh, we, we thought we were small beings in this, in this enormous universe, and we discovered we were actually giants in the scale of things. That human beings in the scale of things, in the entire scale of the universe, from the very largest to the very smallest, that we humans are actually not simply in the middle size, we're a little bit on the big size. And that there is literally, literally more smallness beneath us than there is bigness beyond us. We are giants. And what do giants do? They overlook things that are small. What's happening at the very small? The universe is getting recreated at the very small. What else did science tell us? It tells us that 96% of the known universe is invisible. It's dark energy and dark matter. That came out in, in the 2006, 2005. 96% of the known universe is invisible. You're part of this universe. As a giant, most of you is invisible. Okay, well then, this starts changing how we see the world. We then recognize we live in a universe of infinite openness, dimensionality. And we live not in the 3,000th dimension or the 300th dimension or the 30th dimension. We live in the third dimension. We're just crawling out of a black hole, which is one dimension. So here we are. We're giants in the universe that's essentially transparent. We're just crawling out of a black hole. We're just getting started. We're radically changing how we're seeing ourselves through the lens of science. Uh, science says, well, look, uh, the whole thing is filled with energy. It's thick with energy. It's dense with energy. A cubic inch of empty space has millions of atomic bombs worth of energy in it. 
Why is there so much energy through the universe? It's because it's getting recreated at every moment. We're not just sitting here stable, enduring, and quiet. The entire universe is getting regenerated at the speed of light, and you're a part of that regenerative process, and that's a part of your transparent, giant beingness. And lastly, what science has learned is that we can intuitively engage and know that. And, and uh, roughly in the United States, we learned back in 2006, two-thirds of the people in the United States had intuitive understandings about uh, the world. Uh, they might have an intuitive impression about a loved one and, and their well-being. In other words, people recognize that we are not just these materialistic uh, beings in, in, a, in a world of dead matter and empty space. We're a part of a living field. And as science increasingly validated that, we saw uh, this new nature uh, that we are, we opened to the possibility and to the reality that we live in a living universe, and that subtle perceptual shift really turned out to be a profound shift in many ways of our sense of identity, life purpose, sense of ethics, and all the rest. Mm. So this is, uh, <laughs> this is quite a radical uh, discovery here, and this is certainly one of our most exciting trips to, to 2020. When you say, when you speak in terms of us being giants, yeah. what first comes to mind is huge, lumbering, physical beasts. And, and what, yes. what I think you're referring to is giants in terms of, of consciousness. Isn't it? No. No. I'm saying we are huge. huge. Lumbering. We are <laughs> mad. We are, we are so huge. We cannot imagine. Um, I, I, I genuinely mean, and this is a new discovery. Truly, if you had a ruler that went to the very largest scale of the known universe, to the tiniest, we, in our size, let's say five, six feet, you seven feet tall. <laughs> that size is in the middle scale of the of the scale of the entire universe, wow. and it's actually a little on the big side. It's about fifty five percent. It's we're a little on the big side. Like this is actual physics, and it means that that um, there is an extraordinary amount happening at this refined small scale, and as giants. We think um, we look down six feet, and that's about it. You know, that's about where it gets tiny, and that's it. No, no, <laughs> there are worlds upon worlds upon worlds. Okay. Just purely from a physicality standpoint. Purely okay. from a physicality. Purely from that. Okay. This is just physics. Okay. And one of the shifts um, that we intuited back in 2006 was the power of uh, commitment as a, a guiding, as a rudder, mm. if you will, for the kinds of transitions and transformations that seem to be being asked of us going from teenagers to mature people, you know, to being a species of, that was much more mature. But not commitment in the sense of an onerous or taking on a burden. But really taking a stand for for life, and, I'm, and I've heard that in in a number of the ways that you've described the local being local, you know, being committed uh -huh. to our local health and wholeness, willing to work out 
whatever it is we need to work out about the economy, about the social forms and yeah. all those things. Speak a little bit for me, Dwayne, about the way that commitment played a role in this journey from looking back from 2020. I remember that there were so many different ways that people could access that sense of being committed to, to life, to being in deep relationship with yeah. life. And I just, I just wonder whatever your reflection yeah. might be about that. Let's see what comes up for me. A couple of things. One is, um, um, whether we call it commitment, purpose, intention, it's to have bring an aligning force into one's life. And this, in a way, gets back to physics. Mm-hmm. If I'm on a bike and I'm just standing there, not going anywhere, I'm going to fall over. Mm-hmm. i got to be moving to have a balance and the ability to, to be stable. And so a commitment and purpose and intention is that direction and movement I bring through life. And with that... Um, I, I, there's a stability that goes uh, with that as well. And to the extent that, that we're uh, in the face of crisis and we're just sitting on our hands, confused, mm-hmm. we don't know where we're going, we don't have a sense of intention and purpose in the face of all of that, we're in big trouble. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So. Uh, where there's no vision, the people perish. Where there's no commitment, where there's no intention, where there's no purpose, the people perish. Institutions perish. <laughs> Businesses perish. So it's it's really, really important. Now, um, the other thing that comes up uh, for me that I often speak with people is about is their true gifts as opposed to their near gifts. And this comes from the uh, Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who said that uh, we all have uh, both near gifts, things we're pretty good at, and true gifts, things that we're soulfully gifted, just mm. wonderfully uh, mm. uh, uh, gifted at giving back to the world. I think many of us have been earning a living on our near gifts, things we're pretty mm. good at. And the, the circumstance of the world we're moving into is calling for our true gifts. And our near gifts are not going to be good enough to take us through, I think, this time of, of testing and challenge. It's going to call for our true gifts. Now, I don't know what... The, every person has different true gifts. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. But but I, I am confident that they're out there, and if those gifts are given, we'll have what we need to make it through. So, you're, you're 77 years old now, right? Yeah. So, you should... You should be old enough to know what your true gifts are. How, how would you describe your true gifts? Oh. Let's see. Uh, uh, one true gift would be a passion for the human journey. Right. I, 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 I can believe that. Yeah, just, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and just uh, celebrating that and inquiring and, and, uh, and uh, uh, learning about that and so on. A second true gift would be a, uh, just a passion for uh, living in a living universe, that the universe is a living system, and um, to celebrate that and to uh, bring that into uh, the world. Third would be... Um, sustainable living, uh, whether it's anything from an eco-village and co-housing to a sustainable lifestyles and in a, in a personal way to look at that, not simply as a style of life, but a way of life, uh, committing ourselves to living in a living universe. Mm-hmm. And then uh, lastly, a passion for media. 
uh, a gift for at least saying, let's use the, these tools of extraordinary uh, communication to take us into this more uh, promising future and create a politics of uh, media and a politics of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're back when you were describing mm -hmm. the beginnings of what happened uh, in Seattle, the voice of, what you call it, the voices of? Community voice organization. Community voice organization. Your true gift is really is really sensing what's possible. Oh yeah, yeah. And then translating that in terms that it, it enables other people to access what you're able to see. So it's it's your personal functioning in the same way that you're wanting that uh, that, that mm. back in 2007, whenever it happened, uh, that group in Seattle was functioning. Yeah, uh, Otto Scharmer wrote an article back in 2006 at the beginning of, uh, I think, his second book, and he called it Leading from the Future as it Emerges. Hmm. You know, and so, um, you know, what I, what I get from listening to you, Duane, is that hope is not an abstraction. You know, it's not a wishing for something, but it is uh, living in a living universe. It's, it's yeah. naturally hopeful. Yeah, you know, naturally brings up the place where I say, "Oh, well, that's possible." Well, if I can suddenly publish any small film that I might make, and anybody in the world can see it, then what's possible? Yeah. What's the stories that I want to tell yes. with that media? Yeah. What, and what are what are my stories to tell? I don't need to tell everybody's stories, and I don't need to tell stories that can only get funded by the movie making industry whatever my true gifts are can come out in that that's right. medium. That's yeah. right. And that's uh, that's really exciting. That's right. Really uh, exciting. Uh, you, you mentioned hope. And people often say, well, you're really optimistic. And uh, I say, you know, I'm not. I'm not optimistic. I'm hopeful. And Kierkegaard said, uh, hope is a passion for the possible. And if we look at, at what's going on and say, well, can we grow up? Well, yeah, that's possible. Uh, could we have a sustainable future? Well, yeah, that's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, could we use the mass media to communicate in a way uh, that it's really a more mature communication about uh, what's going on and, and maybe a, a, a new future that we want? Yeah, that's possible. Uh, and so um, I'm not so much optimistic as I am hopeful that all of this is possible. So let's just get on with... Uh, creating that possibility. And I think uh, as the stories that we tell are critical. The, um, there's this wonderful uh, professor of communications, um, uh, George Gerbner, he said that to control a society, you don't need to control its courts uh, or its laws or its armies. He said to control a society, all you need to do is control its stories. And he said television tells most of the people most of their stories most of the time. Mm -hmm. Well, now we have the internet and we have YouTube and uh, we have an explosion of storytelling happening from the grassroots. So, uh, we have a storytelling revolution that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, that storytelling uh, revolution ha is what is transforming uh, the world. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, 
Please visit us at www.sternova.com, write us at ideas at sternova.com, or visit our blog at blog.sternova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 license by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.